Well, today we start a four-week series on the book of Philippians. Um, if you've never heard the book of Philippians, it's a little four-chapter book in the New Testament, uh, written by the Apostle and it's actually a letter written to the church in Philippi. Uh, it's only four chapters long. You could finish reading in about 15 minutes. Uh, the book of Philippians is Paul's encouragement to the church in Philippi. Okay? It's a letter encouraging them to rejoice and be joyful regardless of the situations. Now, we're going to see over the next couple of weeks uh, this reoccurring theme pop up. And it's this, that believers are to be joyful, united, humble, and Christ-like. And so as we do with every new sermon series, we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to, to speak to us through this book. And so let's close our eyes and let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is power and life in your word. Thank you that it has the power to heal, restore, and make new. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts and open our ears? Would your word fall on good soil today? And as we delve into Philippians, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word? You know exactly what each single one of us needs to hear today. We lean into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently I finished reading an autobiography by uh, Major Dick Winters. Now, if you're a fan of the HBO TV series Band of Brothers, then you kind of know that name. Uh, the whole series revolves around Major Dick Winters and the U.S. 101st Airborne uh, Paratroopers called Easy Company. If you're a World, II, uh, World War II buff or if you love history, then I would highly recommend this uh, series. Uh, because you get to see what good leadership is. You get to see the price and brutality of war. And uh, you get to see the courage of those fighting for freedom. Now, in one of the scenes early on in the series, uh, the U.S. Army make a decision to send 15,000 paratroopers into France, into Normandy. Uh, for most of them, it's their first jump into the war. Uh, it's a jump scheduled at 1.20 a.m. Uh, behind enemy lines. And as a thousand planes make their way into France, into Normandy, the sky lights up with anti-aircraft uh, missiles. And it's like fireworks. There's chaos going everywhere, left, right, and center. Uh, planes are blowing up everywhere. Uh, and, and even though they're not at the correct location and they're not at the correct altitude, the light goes green and they have to jump. And many don't even make it out of the planes because of the anti-aircraft missiles. But for those that have made it on the ground, it's, it's pitch black. They have no idea where they're at. They're surrounded by enemy fire. And some of them have lost their weapons. Major Dick Winters was one of these soldiers who lost their entire gear on the way down. And in his autobiography, he says that um, he only had a small knife. And that was it. And by chance, he meets another paratrooper. And they begin the war side by side, fighting together. And just like how Major Winters uh, wouldn't have survived by himself on the battlefield, we're going to see through the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, the call for us to fight together, to live life worthy of the gospel. And so today our main passage uh, is from Philippians 1, 27 to 28. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to there and uh, let's read. Verse 27, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my presence, in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So the book of Philippians is written uh, by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter written to the church in Philippi. And there's no doubt that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter because all the information that we have points to him as the author. Uh, Now, the city of Philippi, right, it was a significant place for Paul's missionary work because it actually was the entranceway of the gospel into Europe. Uh, Philippi was a city in the main, uh, in the province of Macedonia. It was a Roman province, uh, but it was slightly different. And we've got a map of it uh, because it wasn't in Rome itself, it's like how the island of Hawaii is still a part of the U.S. colony, but it's actually not in, uh, in America itself. Uh, this meant a couple of things. This meant that Rome, was still controlled, uh, Rome still controlled the taxes and the local administration. Uh, Latin was a language used, and uh, Roman citizens, officials, soldiers, when they retired, they went there to, to live. And the city of Philippi was founded by uh, Philip of Macedonia. Now, if you don't know who that is, you'll most likely know his uh, son, Alexander the Great, who went on to conquer the world. And so when we see in Acts 16, we actually see Paul, Silas, and Timothy go to Philippi on a mission trip, kind of like our guys going to Cambodia, right? And as the story unfolds, we read that Paul found no synagogue, no church, uh, but on a Sunday, the Sabbath, he discovered a place of prayer. And it was a place of prayer, kind of like beside a beach site. And he found a group of women praying together. And it's he that it kicks off the spread of the gospel into Philippi. He meets a wealthy merchant named Lydia and a whole household believing God. Paul exercises a spirit out of a slave girl, and, they're the, and then they're condemned to prison. And in prison, he meets a jailer, and his whole family gets saved. And so with these three groups of people, Paul starts the Philippian church. And now you have to remember these two key details with the context of this letter. Or it's not going to make sense. You're not going to get as much out of it. Or you're going to take some verses out of context. You know, there's no stat on uh, the most uh, misquoted verses from the Bible, but I reckon it comes from Philippians. Uh, the, The first thing is this. Paul is writing in jail. Okay. He's writing in prison. He's been locked up in prison so many times that the books of Philemon, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, they're all written in prison. And some have turned, termed it his prison letters. So he's in prison in the city of Rome, facing a trial, knowing that he's going to get executed. And so when we read this letter, keep in the forefront of your mind uh, that Paul is surrounded by rats. He's surrounded by human waste. He's surrounded by prisoners, and he knows that his time is coming up. The second thing is this. Nero was the emperor of Rome at this time. Nero was a brutal and cruel ruler. If you've never heard of Nero, this is a quote by a historian. Besides being put to death, the Christians were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to serve, to illuminate the night when daylight failed. 
And so there's persecution happening to the Christian. Uh, there's an emperor who's torturing Christians to satisfy his own wicked desires. And it's in this spiritual climate that, that the apostle Paul, he writes to the church in Philippi. And so with all these things going on, persecution, Paul's imprisonment, it leads us to Philippians 1, where Paul writes this letter to encourage the church. And so today we're going to see two things. Number one, we're going to see Paul's heart of thanksgiving. And number two, we're going to see Paul's perspective on life and death. But it's all going to accumulate, right? It's all going to land at this one central idea, and it's this. Live a life worthy of the gospel. You know, there's so much truth and wisdom in these four chapters that we could easily spend months and months and months just on chapter one. But number one, Paul's heart of thanksgiving. Verse three, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul begins this letter by telling the Philippians that he's grateful for them. He's grateful to God for them. And he says that he prays for the Philippians with joy. I wonder how many of us pray for our brothers or sisters or even our family members with joy. When was the last time we prayed for someone or something and we were so full of joy for them. And as I mentioned before, you'll see this theme of joy run throughout the whole entire letter. That the believers of Jesus should be joyful. If there's anyone who has the right to challenge us about being joyful in the middle of circumstances and trouble, it's the Apostle Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians 11.23, he says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and being exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. And in danger from false believers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. For Paul, joy wasn't found in his circumstances or in his comfort of things. But it was from seeing the gospel make progress through his circumstances. It was seeing the gospel thrive in the lives of the Philippian church. And this is why when the circumstances of life threaten Paul, his emotions aren't swaying everywhere. He's not looking for a way out. He's not sad Sally. Uh, sorry if your name is Sally. <laughs> you know, we experienced it last week in prayer and fasting. With those of us who fasted food, some of us were really not happy. You know, some of us are really just angry. We see that the reason for Paul's joy and thankfulness to God is that he's confident that God will complete the good work that has begun in the Philippians. And we see that in verse 6. But what is the good work? It's the entire work of salvation 
Paul says here that salvation isn't dependent on the power of man, but on God. That it's God who is faithful to finish what he starts. God is the one who begins the work of redemption. Remember that because of sin, right, all of mankind is completely corrupted by sin. That every single one of us, we're incapable of obeying the law of God because we're corrupted. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have rebelled against God. And we are all incapable of doing, God, doing good without God. They call this the doctrine of total depravity. And so when we hear that God is the one who begins the work of redemption, it should lift up a lot of pressure off ourselves to have to earn to do good or earn to uh, earn our salvation. God is the one who initiates salvation. He reaches out his hand to us first. You know, a lot of us have been taught that salvation is up to us, that we need to reach out to God first. You know, every other religion, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, will tell you that you need to do good in order to be right with God. But it's God who gives us that desire for him. It's God who does the saving. The gospel sets us free from striving. It sets us free from focusing on our circumstances. It fixes our hearts and our eyes on Jesus. Paul shows us the power of the gospel in, in having this supernatural joy because the truth of the gospel is that it will, it will give you joy. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. One author says, Christian assurance rests not in the Christianness of our Christianity, but in the Godness of God. If the power to save does not come from us, then the paralyzing pressure to save ourselves need not oppress us. Assurance of salvation rests not in how strong our grip is on our Father's hand, but in how strong His grip is on us. I love that quote. When I think about Paul's joy toward the Philippian church in the face of trials and sufferings, it makes, me, it makes sense why Paul is so undeterred. The foundation of his joy is the assurance of salvation. You know, the question that we need to wrestle with today is not how to be more happy in 2023, because happiness depends on circumstances. But the question for us is, how do we follow Paul and have an unshakable foundation of faith? How do we have an unshakable foundation of joy? Because the truth is that if you're a Christian, it was God who began the work in you, and He is faithful to complete it. Number two, Paul's perspective on life and death. So after Paul's introductory words of greetings and thanksgiving, he begins to update the Philippian church on what has happened to him, right? In verses 12 to 18, Paul encourages the church that despite his imprisonment, the gospel is spreading. It's advancing. Verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
The gospel is meant to be spread. The good news is meant to be proclaimed freely, widely, and boldly. It was something that was prophesied and foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus made it clear that he came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. And so Paul is in jail and he shares the gospel with the guards. And the gospel is spreading. And it's here that we find one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that sounds like a great quote to put on a mug or on a bumper sticker on your car. And a lot of us would think that that's a great life motto. Let's live like that. Let's post that on Instagram. And it is a great verse. But you have to remember the context and where Paul was at and what he was doing and what he was facing at this moment. Because if we know that, then we know that it's not just a throwaway line or a verse of the day. But he's saying that whether I get executed or tortured for my faith, my eyes are on Jesus. You know, one of the early church leaders uh, and Christian writers who directly followed the apostles was a bishop by the name of Polycarp. Now, why was he named after Pokemon? I have no idea. Um, But the story about Polycarp's martyrdom, right, is pretty famous throughout church history. And the story is that in AD 155, or roughly around there, when persecution against Christians swept across the entire Roman Empire, uh, the proconsul, right, Uh, the leaders, they found, arrested, and brought Polycarp to a public arena to be executed. Surrounded by thousands and thousands of spectators, uh, he was given a final chance to recant. And they said, Polycarp, curse the Christ and live. So the crowd waited for Polycarp to answer. And this was his reply. Eighty and six years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme the name of my king and lord. And with that, Polycarp became a martyr. The reality is that every single one of us in this room will face death. Every single one of us in this city will take a last breath. We often forget that life is short. And like the book of Ecclesiastes says, life is like a vapor, a mist It's temporary. We all have to face the reality of death, and we all have to wrestle with what the Apostle Paul says. I was mulling on this this week, the idea of life versus death, and I was thinking about the last two years with COVID. And like 90% of the world's population, uh, the idea of COVID and its impact, it's frightening. The news, the stories, the uncertainty, the fear, And I'm not taking away from the seriousness of the pandemic because, you know, as followers of Jesus, we're called to love and protect those that are vulnerable. But think about this. The greatest weapon the enemy or COVID has against us is death. Let that sink in. And some of us, we've been so caught up in the fear of COVID and death that it's paralyzed us. It's made us a slave to the fear of death. But 2 Timothy 1.10 says this, 
that in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What does that mean? It means he died so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus has defeated death. So if you call yourself a Christian, then death is nothing more than a passageway to another stage of redemption, to more of Jesus, to the presence of Jesus. This is why Paul says death is gain. Things get better. This is why the Christian faith is so countercultural. This is why people look at us weirdly. You know, the world's motto for life is this, to live is to live for yourself and to die is loss. But to live for yourself rather than to live for God, right? It's the essence of sin. Jesus says the greatest command is to love God and love people. When we live by this world's motto, we actually go against God. And Scripture is super clear. There is eternal death for those who want to live by this world's motto, to live for self. And this is why verse 21 will set you free. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It all starts with the truth that Jesus came to die for your selfishness. We're all self-centered. We're all selfish in different ways. Jesus came to forgive us our sins. He came to rescue us, to set us free from the slavery of idols, of money and people and status. And so when Jesus comes into your life, he goes into the very center of your life. And like how the solar system revolves around the sun, we begin to orientate our thoughts, our desires, our hopes, and our dreams around Christ. So how do we follow Paul and cultivate a heart of thanksgiving and have the proper perspective on life? Well, Paul tells us, well, Paul tells the Philippian church in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's not saying that the gospel can be earned with a good life or a worthy life. If that's the case, then no one would be able to live worthy of the gospel. Because the truth is that the gospel is the good news about someone else's worth and work. Has anyone seen the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio? I think it came out like 18 years ago now, 20, 2002. Uh, well, it's actually originally a book about a con artist, right, who successfully performed cons uh, worth millions of dollars by posing as a pilot, a doctor, a lawyer, a prosecutor. And, and the end, at the end of the day, it's, it's actually really about someone trying to earn a worthy life. Right? It's something that we will never actually able to do. The phrase manner of life, it can actually be translated to life as citizens. And to the, and to the people of Philippi, who are mostly Roman citizens, this would have made sense. To a Roman citizen, it didn't mean 
that you were just born in a Roman province, right? It meant Roman thinking, Roman ways, Roman culture. It meant Roman allegiances, especially to Caesar. Paul is trying to shake their focus off their earthly citizenship to their heavenly citizenship, to a higher identity, to a higher standard of conduct, to a higher allegiance, right? So how do we live in a manner worthy of the gospel? We strive together. Paul continues to say in verse 27, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith, one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And the key word here is striving. And it actually comes from the Roman military. Roman soldiers were known to fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder. They didn't fight by themselves. Have you guys seen the movie 300? In a famous scene, you see a small army of soldiers come up against a massive army. And in this scene, you see an ocean of arrows being shot at the army. And what they have to do is they have to pack close together. They have to put their shields together and move forward. They fight as a unit. They fight as a group. That's how the Romans fought the battles. And it made them successful because they knew how to fight together. They knew how to strive together. And so Paul says to the believers in Philippi that they are called to fight and strive together. The same is true for us. Yes, we are a church family, but we often forget that we're also in a battle, that the church is also an army. We're on mission together. In Sydney, Australia, you know, you may not be facing the same threat of execution or torture as they did in Philippi. But the landscape and the environment in which we live is still, still a difficult place to live for Christ. We're in a battle, and we can't do this alone. And so just as the Apostle Paul is pleading with the Philippians to strive together, it's also a call for us as a family, a community, to be united in mission and heart. That's one of the big exhortations and commands from Paul. Be united. Men of the Chapel City, this one's for you guys. We have the call of God on our lives to set the tone for our families, for our communities, for our city. We have the call on God, call of God to set the tone for how we love and follow Jesus. So maybe it's time to quit playing the games. Maybe it's time to quit sitting on the fence, to stop being half in and half out. Maybe it's time to step into the real battlefield where everything is at stake. Life, death, eternity. Maybe it's time to stop watching the battle. Maybe you've been on the sidelines at church for years. It's time to pick up your sword, your gifts, your talents, and join the battle. Jesus has called every single one of us to fight. We're called to imitate God. We're called to imitate Jesus, to fight like he fought, to live like he lived, 
How did God fight? He fought by, live, by loving people to death. Jesus came as fully human, fully God, lived a sinless life on our behalf, went to the cross, died for our sins, and rose again in victory. We're called to love people to death because we have the message of life. Jesus went to hell and back for you. He came and suffered for you so that you would be forgiven and your life would be changed. And this is why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain because he knew this truth. This was his personal conviction. Philippians 1 is a call for all of us to stop living for ourselves, to stop living apart from God and to turn to Christ. The question for us today is, are you living a life worthy of the gospel? Have you joined the mission? Have you joined the battle? Have you joined the fight to love people to death? What will you choose today? Let's close our eyes in prayer.